Welcome to the John Brown University Chapel podcast, recorded in the historic Cathedral of the Ozarks in Salem Springs, Arkansas. Good morning. Uh, It's good to be back with you in chapel during this Advent season. While it hasn't been a perfect semester, it has been a good one, almost even a normal one. And I'm really grateful to God for the way he has preserved us uh, these last three months. I, I hope, and you are as well, looking forward to all sorts of fun things this week. Listening to your friends in the candlelight service on Thursday or Friday or Saturday. Uh, I hear the men of J. Alvin are pulling out all the stops for the Christmas party on Thursday night, uh, celebrating the 100th anniversary of their building. Uh, It's been renovated since then, so if you haven't been in, it's not that bad. Well, I can't actually justify that. I don't know if it's that bad. And, um, and then Carrie and I will be hosting a uh, study break for you on Sunday afternoon if you'd like to come from 3 to 5. We've been in the Gospel of Mark all semester, and I wanted to return there just one more time. So listen as I read the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 13, verses 24 to 37. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in heaven will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out his angels and direct gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and put out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning this day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey, when he leaves home and he puts his servants in charge, each with his own work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the cock crows, or in the morning, lest he comes and finds you asleep. And when I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So when I learned that we were going to study Mark this semester, I went and looked up a couple lectionaries to see what passages in Mark are traditionally read during the Advent season. And there's only two passages in Mark that regularly appear. The story of John the Baptist, which was the story that we did for the first chapel, and then this uh, this passage from Mark 13. Now that result's not terribly surprising. Mark is the only gospel that really doesn't give any account of Christ's birth. Most of the rest of the scripture readings in Advent are either Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah coming or from Matthew, Mark, uh, sorry, Matthew, Luke, and John describing the birth of Christ. In other words, most of the scripture readings focus on Christ's first coming. Advent is not, however, just about Christ's coming, but is about his coming again. And this Mark passage focuses on Mark, on Christ coming again. 
Indeed, Mark 13 is sort of like a one-chapter version of Revelations. It's a mini-vision of the apocalyptic vision that we have at the end of the Bible. Now, apocalyptic literature seeks to reveal or uncover hidden events about the end of the world, usually cataclysmic events. And I was trying to think of a popular or modern example of apocalyptic literature to give you some sense of what it's like. And the only thing I could come up with was the Marvel Universe. During the pandemic, at the promptings of my dear nephew, we watched every one of the movies and TV shows in order. We had a lot of time on our hands. Uh, and there are definitely apocalyptic themes in the MCU. Some examples. Thanos' snap that causes the blip in Infinity Wars, a lot like the rapture. <laughs> Resurrecting all the superheroes in Endgame to fight that final battle, a lot like Armageddon. And now there's this whole thing called the multiverse, and I still can't even get my head around what that means. And of course, debates rage on in the meaning of this thing in the MCU or that event, what will happen in the future, a lot like people talking about the end times as Christians. I think the MCU uh, reveals, really, our deep desire as human beings to know what will come at the end and how good will defeat evil. Now, the passage of Mark gives us some answers to those questions and teaches us how we should prepare for Christ's second coming. In short, three things. Mark 3, 13 teaches us that Christ will again come to judge the world, that Christ's final judgment should bring great comfort and great fear to us, but most of all, hope. And third, that we should stay awake and be on guard for his second coming. So first, Mark's description of the second coming. Now, Christians have spent a lot of time writing and preaching about the second coming. When I was growing up, there was this movie that was called A Thief in the Night, which gave a very detailed and terrifying vision of the rapture. I still remember the scene in which a mother is doing dishes in the sink, and all of a sudden she's gone, and the water keeps running in the sink, and then the camera focuses on this child who is crying because he's been left behind. Terrifying. We saw the film in camp or in a youth group, and it was clearly a motivation to scare people into heaven which I do not think is the, actually the best way for people to understand God's grace and resurrection. And then maybe some of you were, were uh, kind of read some of these things, but Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins wrote 12 books in the Left Behind series from about mid-90s to mid-2000. Seven of those books made on the New York Times bestseller list, including, eight, and then 80 million copies of the books were sold. It was also made into four movies. And of course, preachers and theologians have preached and written lots and lots of books about the end times, thinking about pre or post or uh, pre or mid or post-tribulation or amillennialism, all these things. But who's the Antichrist? All these predictions. So clearly there's a great fascination with the second coming. And it's a biblical topic worth studying. However, given the imaginative and highly elusive language that's in apocalyptic literature, and given that scripture itself says it's difficult to know the details of the second coming. I think we should approach the topic with some humility and some restraint. It's not wise or I think helpful to spend a lot of time predicting the exact time or method or events of the second coming. And when Christians start to talk about how this or that U.S. president's probably the Antichrist or that Christ will come on this exact day, which Christians have done regularly and been wrong, 
I think the best response to that is graceful skepticism and a refocus on the essentials of the second coming. And Mark, does, Mark 13 does give us some of those essentials. Mark tells us, first of all, that Christ will, in fact, come again and be presence amongst us on earth. He will come after a time of persecution and suffering. We will see him coming in the clouds with great power and glory, which, again, is not surprising. When God led his people out of uh, Egypt in the Exodus, he leads them as a cloud by day and fire by night. Mark's description links the second coming with the Exodus. And by the way, the Exodus is what, one of the things that we'll be studying in the spring chapel focus. Similar to the Exodus in his second coming, Christ will liberate his chosen people. He will free them from the slavery of sin and suffering. He'll bring about judgment and he'll bring about justice. He'll lead his people to the promised land, the promised land of a new heaven and a new earth. The Exodus is a is an example of God's promise to judge evil and to reconcile and save his people. Christ's second coming will be the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. But how should we think about this thing that Christ is coming again to judge the world? On one level, I think it should bring us great comfort because we all have this deep desire for justice and righteousness, for the alleviating of suffering, for the protecting of the weak and vulnerable, for the people that do bad, to be punished and for the restoring of health. We know the world is not right. We know it when a 15-year-old sophomore kills four of his classmates and wounds eight others. And when a person drives his car through a Christmas parade in Wisconsin and kills six people. We know the world is right, not right, when over five million people have died of COVID and five million people every year are exploited in sex trafficking when 56 million children are killed in abortions around the world, and when over 800 million people go to bed hungry every night. We know the world is not right when we still judge one another by the color of our skin, and we can't even talk about it with each other. We know the world is not right when dictators use chemical weapons on their own citizens, when there's rumors and threats of war, or when government officials persecute and imprison Muslims and Buddhists and Christians for practicing their religion. We know the world is not right when we're betrayed by a friend, when our parents can't stop fighting, when a cloud of depression comes upon us again, and when our grandparents start to lose their memory. We know the world is not right, not just because of sinful choices of bad people, but because of the sinful conditions and forces that lead people to make those bad choices. We long for Christ to come again to judge the world and make it right. However, Christ's judgment in the second coming should also give us a pause. If Jesus is coming to judge the world, he'll also come to judge us. And ah, there is the rub. If we're truthful with ourselves, we know we can never be good enough to live up to that judgment. Evil lies deep within us, in our attitudes, choices, and actions. Francis Schaeffer is a 20th century Christian apologist, and he had a thought experiment to help explain what it might feel like to be judged by God. He imagines that God places an invisible microphone around the neck of every human being when they're born. And that microphone turns on every time you judge somebody else or I judge somebody else, or you set an expectation for how they live. 
Then he says, when you come to the judgment seat of Christ, Christ will say to you, I won't judge you by the Ten Commandments. I won't judge you by the Golden Rule or any other biblical standard. I will just judge you by the standards of which you judged others in the world. Let us play your recording. None of us could live up to the standards that we expect for others, let alone the standards of the moral life expected in the Bible. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And God coming in to judge us should create a bit of a holy fear in us as we think about it. But then how can we have hope in the second coming? Particularly as we think about Christ's judgment. Turn again to Mark's description of the second coming. He says that when Christ comes again, again to judge the world, the sun will be darkened and the powers in heaven will be shaken. Tim Keller suggests this description actually echoes another event in Christ's life. In Mark 15, Mark tells us that the darkness descends over the whole land for three hours during Christ's crucifixion. And Matthew 27 tells us of the earthquake that shook the world when he died. In other words, Mark's description of Christ's second coming echoes the events of Christ's death and resurrection when he took our judgment on himself. Mark suggests that the Christ who is king coming to judge the world is also Christ who is the suffering servant who has already paid the penalty for that judgment. We can only look forward to hope with hope for the second coming because it's Jesus that's coming to judge. And he has already shown in his death and resurrection that he has the power, the authority, the compassion, and the love to judge us right. Finally, Mark teaches us that no one will know the day or hour of the second coming. Strikingly, Mark says that neither the angels or even Jesus himself knows the date in which he will come again, only the Father. So if Jesus doesn't know the right when he will return, perhaps we shouldn't spend too much time with complicated time frames about the second coming. Instead, Mark encourages us to stay awake, be on guard, to watch for Christ coming again. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be on guard, to stay awake? He gives us an example of a man master of a house who goes on a journey and puts his servants in charge of the house while he's away. So that's us. We're the servants that have been put in charge of the house while the master is away. Mark then says that each of the servants has their work to do. And the doorkeeper in particular must stay awake to be ready to welcome uh, his master back home. So how do we think about this illustration? As servants of Jesus Christ, we have each been given work to do right now that contributes to Christ's kingdom on earth. And that is the, one of the primary ways we can stay awake and be ready for Christ coming again. So examples, some of you are trained to be nurses or counselors, and you're going to bring about healing in the body and the mind, a healing that furthers God's kingdom. You should do that work. Others of you are learning to be better artists or writers or musicians or athletes, and you create beauty all the time. And beauty is essential to God's kingdom. You should do that work. Construction management majors are building houses and commercial buildings that will give homes to people and provide places to work. Entrepreneurial majors will start businesses and employ people. Engineers will create designs that we become more energy efficient and conserve our world. Education majors will teach the next generation. All of these activities promote the flourishing of human beings and they contribute to the building of God's kingdom. It's the kind of work that Christ calls us to do now as we wait for him as we look forward to him in the future. And of course, our work is not limited to what we do in our jobs. 
Lord willing, all of you, whether you're single or you're married, will be involved in families that nurture the young. That is part of God's work. Lord willing, you'll be involved in community or church organizations that help to feed the hungry or clothe the less fortunate or encourage the prisoner or teach the immigrant or care for the widows and the orphans, advocate for justice, reconcile with the people with whom you are estranged. Lord willing, you'll be involved in church that will lead you in worship and will teach you from God's word and encourage you to serve and help you to become more faithful followers of Jesus. All of these activities are doing our work and staying awake as we wait for Christ to come again. Christ calls us to start that work now, even though we know it will never be fully completed until he comes again. Now, I have a slightly strange illustration, I think, that brings this, home, this point home. It comes from Tolkien's Two Towers and the Lord of the Rings. I think it's one of his greatest pictures of Christ's second coming. Here's the context. King Theoden has been the king of Rohan for 40 years. He's grown old and tired. He literally looks sleepy or drugged when we first see him in the film because he's been misled, perhaps even poisoned by Wormtongue, Saruman's servant. Gandalf, Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli come to literally wake him up to his duty to protect his people and resist the evil of Saruman. It takes some time, but Theodome, Theodome finally shakes off his stupor and leads the Rohan people. He leads women and children and old people and soldiers from his, from his house, from his palace in the plains, and they go up to the fortress of Hornborg in Helm's Deep because it's the best place to provide defense against the evils in this world. Um, meanwhile, Gandalf tells them, I'm going to head out. I'm going to go up and gather the rest of the soldiers of Rohan that are scattered all over the place and I will come to Helm's Deep in five days. Now I'm going to show you a short clip of the movie. It's dawn is breaking on the fifth day and the orcs are literally about to breach the inner sanctum of the fortress. It looks as if all is lost. Show the clip. <laughs> you could clap for that. Nothing like a little battle with the orcs to wake you up during an Advent sermon. <laughs> I would suggest that this clip gives us a picture of the dangers of falling asleep and what it means to be on guard, to stay awake for the second coming. The work of Theoden and Aragon and the soldiers is literally to fight the forces of evil. They have used every strategy to protect the vulnerable women and children, but they've run out of options and death seems imminent for all. Even so, they choose to read out, ride out together and not, you notice, not for death and glory, as Theoden says, but for the people of Rohan, as Aragon corrects him. And moreover, they remember Gandalf's promise. Look for my coming at the first light on the fifth day. At dawn, look to the east. Gimli goes to sound the horn, which echoes the the scripture that says a trumpet will sound before the great resurrection. And then we see Gandalf coming over the hill. And it looks like the image of the second coming of Christ, right? He's in the full light of dawn as if he's coming down from the clouds. And the brightness of his light is contrasted with the darkness of the orcs in the valley below. In fact, it's, um, it's the light from Gandalf that actually breaks the line of the orcs before they get to the end. I think it's a great image of John's description of Christ's birth. In him was life, 
and the light was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, I'm not suggesting that many, there might be a few, but not many of you will need to take up arms to defeat evil in this world, or even that you should engage in some, in some sort of cultural war to bring about God's kingdom. No, I'm suggesting that every time you feed the hungry, or befriend the lonely, or heal the sick, or love a stranger, or do your homework, or praise God in song, particularly when you do it with one another, you are stirring yourself awake to push against the forces of evil. You're figuratively killing the evil works, which is the work that we should do to wait and watch and to stay awake, expectantly waiting for Christ's return. And even when you hit that point when everything seems lost, when you've lost all hope of defeating the evil that is overwhelming you, when you're facing your own death or the death of a loved one, then we should not forget to remember to look to the east because Christ has promised that he's coming again to defeat once and for all all the wrong that is in this world and to make all things new. As you read later in Tolkien, as Sam says to Gandalf when he wakes up after they uh, destroy the ring, he sees Gandalf, he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. Then I thought I myself was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? When Christ comes again, everything sad is going to come untrue for those who follow him. His light will shine again in the darkness, and the darkness will not be able to overcome it. We want to be fully awake for that day. It is fitting that we now turn to communion, for it is a meal that Christ has given us to remember his death and resurrection, and that he tells us that we should do until he comes again. It is yet another way that we stay awake and watch for Christ's coming. Let us eat this meal together. Let us not grow weary in doing the work of the kingdom, and let us continue to look expectantly to the east for Christ coming again. May it always be true of us at JBU. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the John Brown University Chapel Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening on, and we'd love it if you would leave us a review.